So it's my pleasure to, uh, insta- uh, to introduce Konstantin Mitguch. Konstantin is here at MIT as a uh, postdoctoral researcher at the Gambit Game Lab. He's been here earlier as a Max Cotta postdoc research fellow. A lot of his work centers on unique approaches to understanding learning. For example, the role of disappointment or failure as a stimulus to learning or the role of subversive games as a way to, uh, to learn. And tonight we're going to hear about a very different approach, uh, playographies, and it's been quite a generative one. So welcome, Constantine. So I haven't been sick in years. I will not fall down and you cannot leave the room if I, <laughs> if I fall over. I would like to talk about transformative experiences in video games. And um, as some of you might know, I gave a talk two weeks ago, which it was pretty much about my, my whole research. So I was in a weird situation to think, you know, I don't want to repeat myself. So I had this brilliant idea of doing this talk. The most important book probably in the sphere of learning and games is from James Paul Chi, What Video Games Can Teach Us About Learning Literacy. The interesting thing is, this is a very interesting approach and the first one that had really a mainstream audience. But every time you give that book to a master student, he will kill himself or herself. Why? Because that's Jim Chi thinking out loud what he thinks about video games. If you do that in your master thesis, you probably get an F because this is pretty much his approach. And you know, it's not a, there is not a methodological um, thing behind it. It is clearly from literature studies. So I had this brilliant idea of doing this. So I thought I can talk about what you don't learn in video games because I think it is a really interesting approach. But then, when I started to think about what I'm saying, I realized I'm doing exactly what Jim G is doing. Again, it is pretty much my anecdotes against his anecdotes. Yeah? So I would talk about that a lot of games, for instance, he's talking about these literacies that you kind of like, these semiotic domains you change through games. And I would say, no, you don't. You probably enter a semiotic domain in a game. But that doesn't mean that you really take something away from that. And that is really core to learning. So I realized, and that's something that is really important to my research in general, I think in game studies, the time of anecdotes should be over. We should really stop kind of like giving this small anecdotes about, you know, um, this is how I played. Or generally, the idea of the player. You know, it's so easy to say that's what players do. Like, really? Do they? Do we know? What research do we have? And we have in this room a few people that really focused like taught, like focused on a specific group where you research a group and really try to understand um, structural aspects in that group. So I thought, no, let's not do that. I spend more time on the cover <laughs> than, than anything else. So let's talk about the research tools um, I use when I think about transformative learning in games. And so therefore, anybody who's not interested in methods should now gently leave the room. I hope it will not be boring. But that's, I think, what I want to talk about because I think it is really important. So we come to the talk um, that is um, titled Tracing Pleographies. So I'm going to talk about the method of doing pleographies. But I'm also going to trace how I get to the point. And that's another problem I see. In method, it often appears that you can just buy a book that teaches you how to do ethnography or whatever. And I believe this is not true because often, if you think about methods, there's a subjective approach to it. Like how do researchers get to the method that has a lot to do with who they are, where they were, what they were reading, and how they kind of like get that all together. So I'm going to try that. And um, I will begin with my personal roots. The first book I ever read on methods was The Arbeitslosen von Marienthal, 
you all know that book probably. <laughs> probably. Nobody knows it? Nobody knows it. Okay. You know it? So that book is the first big sociography of a community done in 1933. And some people might know Paul Felix Lassersfeld, who was really big in sociology. And what they did in that time, between the First and the Second World War, in Austria was pretty much on the ground. So people lost a lot of jobs. And there were communities with a 100% um, percentage of um, unemployed people. And these um, researchers were like, hey, that's pretty cool. Let's research them. And they had 10 researchers going there. The interesting thing is, in that time, research did not exist. Um, sociological research didn't exist, so they really came up with methods. They were, for instance, measuring how fast a person is going when he's unemployed. And they were so researching if that person starts to walk slower over the years. And yes, by the way, it, he does or she does. They also realized that kids are not allowed to play soccer because the shoes are a thing you really have to care for because you cannot repair them anymore. So games are forbidden in marine time. Interesting thing is, Today, you, you're not allowed to, to do that. You would not you know, get a quiz proposal through um, because it was really problematic. They pretended that they um, want to run a, a company there. So they kind of like were there and saying, you really want to do something different here. In the end, they were just researching and the unemployed. But what was interesting for me that I kind of like realized the most interesting question for me is, how do we measure experiences? Yeah, in that book, I really got a sense of, wow, they must be really depressed. And if you think about the time, it, made, it kind of like gave me a different picture to think about why Nazi Germany, why it was so easy to get the people connected. Because these people were really devastated. They came out of a big monarchy and suddenly were nothing anymore. So it's kind of like this urge for a leader. And you really saw that. And I thought it was really interesting how they approached that. And then I had another route, and that is about two years later. I was part in a research project that was focusing again on unemployed. I have something with unemployed people. Maybe I should think about that. <laughs> um, so I was doing um, a research project on narrative interviews with unemployed people. And the approach there was that they were interested in um, unemployed people that in a certain moment in their life realized they are not employable anymore. So they have the sense of this was it. I come from a country where you can do that in a social system. You can say, you know what, I don't get a job anymore. I will from now on live on the state cost. The state didn't like that, did fund that project. And we had to research why did these people stop to work and think that they cannot even be educated anymore. And we had a two-year training in doing interviews. And the idea is you go so deep to the point where the person is really saying, and on that day I realized, no, this was it for me. You know, I will, I will not be part of that game anymore. What is interesting for me is that I realized through the interviews that it is possible through narrative interviews to reach a certain point where a person is really talking about his or her problem or a certain perspective. By the way, in the interview, we had to kind of like motivate him to get back to education. And I thought that was more the problematic aspect. Um, very biased because I realized the person is really saying honestly, okay, and, and on this day when I was fired, I realized I don't want to go back. And we had to kind of like say, well, maybe you should go back to training, you know? So, but, but kind of like reaching that point was something I took away from that. And the third root of that is from Carl Rogers' person-centered therapy. This is weird, I know. So um, we also had a course on that. And I had like three or four courses on Carl Rogers. And what I took away was something that probably most people don't take away is paraphrasing. So what Rogers, I'm not sure if anybody's familiar with the work of Carl Rogers, um, a clear hippie um, psychologist and like really person-centered person therapies from him. But what he was doing is just paraphrasing. This guy would listen to you and just repeat what you said, you know, which is quite a pain. The interesting thing about it is 
by repeating what somebody said, you're just mirroring back what he or she just said. And that has a very interesting um, effect on people because they suddenly start to think about themselves and about what they just said and what they did. And it is impressive, and I learned how impressive it is, what you can do with that tool. And it's really hard. You need really a training to stop you know, getting your interpretation. Just saying, so I just heard that. Is that true? And um, it was really interesting for me to see how far you get. So these are kind of like the roots that lead up to the question, how can we talk with people about transformative experiences? Just a very, this is about methods. So just when, what do I mean when I talk about transformative experiences? First of all, William already mentioned, I'm very interested in learning. But when I talk of learning, I talk about something different than most people when they talk about learning. My favorite definition of learning is this one from Gregory Bateson. The word learning undoubtedly donates change of some kind to say what kind of change is a delicate matter. So happy with the definition, I think you can stop researching learning, just kind of like soaking that in. Because what Bateson realized is learning is such a complex field and just realizing how complex it is and hard it is and how delicate it is, is something you have to get to. And every time I research learning, I kind of like come back to that. Um, but when I say transformation, I want to differ between informational learning and transformational learning. Informational learning is what schools do, pretty much. It is about pretty much changing what we know. So somebody is kind of like giving you certain information or data or whatever. Transformational learning means that you change how we know, how we think. That's a, a way deeper form of learning, a, a form of learning where, ch where you change the way you think about yourself, others, and the world. And there is a, a theoretical concept behind it that I would just like reference once um, with kind of like a summarizing aspect. So transformation, transformational learning implies the development of new perspectives on the world, others, and ourselves through the adjustment and revision of old experience patterns and the development of new ones on their basis. So if you think about your life, Every time something is really changing, um, every time you have a real an experience that's really striking you, a transformational um, experience might set in. Um, not always. You can also get depressed by that. You know, like you can have an experience that is really kind of like showing you, you might, your perspectives are not enough anymore, but you cannot adjust. You know, you cannot develop new patterns. So, but I was interested in when do we develop new patterns, um, transform them, and the, the theoretical basis are based on book matter of Keegan. And I also was writing my, my PhD on that, um, learning to enttäuschen, learning to disappointment. But in the end, this is about the theory of transformative learning. And I will not talk about this today. Yeah? Um, we can anytime, I love to talk about that. What I was mainly interested in, so in life, we really are, are quite bad in having these transformative experiences. Why? Because they hurt, you know, everybody, we would kind of like sometimes prefer to live with our anticipation and expectations about the world. It is very hard for us to go out there and be surprised by how different everything is. So interesting thing is game spaces do something differently. So in a game, we explore way more our expectations and our prejudgments. We're way more open to risk them. So in theory, and this is the theory, that would mean, does that work? Wow. So this is theory. No worries, I will stop theorizing very soon. There is a certain experience structure, patterns that we create through our lives, culturally and socially um, changed. And now we enter a play space with our own structure. And the theory would be that you adapt your structure through playing. And here is the clue. Here is, by the way, where Jim G is stopping. He's saying, yes, that's happening in games. 
And the question is really, like, are we leaving that game space and changing our structures through playing in that game space? That's something we really don't know. That's something where we kind of like come to the next step where I got interested in the question, how do players develop meaningful and transformative experiences through playing games? So is it really true that players have these transformative experiences when they play games? And more in general, um, how are we mediating these experiences? And this kind of like comes to the point of something I will call playographies. But so with all that roots that you just heard, I had a really interesting experience at the conference. Um, I heard Matthias Mertens. He doesn't even remember that talk anymore, which I find funny. What Matthias Mertens in this talk did, Clash of Realities it was called, he was showing drawings of kids and they were drawing their media experiences. And the idea is the more important a certain media form is for you, the bigger the drawing. And he kind of like showed kids and he showed, wow, look at that guy. The TV is that big and the radio is that small and the internet is that big. So he kind of like showed how they use different sizes to kind of like show the importance of a certain media form. And I thought that was really interesting to kind of like, I got a real picture of how that kid cares about media. And the other thing that I, I was interested in is kind of like information horizon maps. These are kind of like visu visualizations of data. How can you even visualize certain aspects? And then, this is the last part of, of my methodological roots to where I come from. This book is awesome. Storylines by Elliot Mischler. What this guy did, he did an interview series on craft artists in the 70s. And his idea was he was looking how craft is changing in the 70s through the implementation of new technology. And what he realized, there were a lot of craft artists, but in the 70s you had the shift, you can now make a business with that and kind of like stop doing really handcraft art or you know, you, you can go into industry and make money with that. And he was interviewing these people and he had, the, he had a very critical approach. He wanted to show that is really sick what is happening right now. We are losing our craft artists. The interesting thing, the publisher declined the book and he would never publish it. But 20 years later, he takes it back out again and looks at it and realized, oh my God, I was so biased. Look how I asked the question. And then he writes the book again. And he again shows the stories of these craft artists, but he's talking a lot about him as a researcher. He's showing, look at me, how biased I was, how I was thinking about craft. Here, look how I changed the question so I get this answer and stuff like that. So that book is not just about craft art, but it's also a very honest book about methodologies and, and interview um, techniques. And what I really found interesting, he's also saying, for instance, that coding, it doesn't make any sense. They're even in the grounded theory, like this is everything here is a lie. Like he shows, look at me how I try to code this, you know, look at me how I try to find patterns. And what he's saying in the end, it all comes down to looking for certain similarities and differences among intra-individual and intra-case patterns of change. So he realized maybe we cannot really take something out of that research and say, you know, that craft artist had that form of change and it's very interesting. But maybe what we can do is we can look for certain intra-case patterns of change. So how is this person changing? How is he thinking about change? How is he approaching all of that? And after all of that, I kind of like came up with this idea of playographies. So a method. I think this is really funny. Um, it's not a, it's, it's a try. So what are playographies? The first thing you do when you do a playography is you draw a timeline of your life. And then looking back, you think about meaningful video game experiences. The more meaningful an experience is, 
the bigger the bubble of that game is. Yeah. So I asked people to do that, and I did different projects. In the first try, I had MIT students, and I asked them to do that, draw bubbles um, of your experiences. The second step is that you kind of like look at the bubbles and the structure and try to include structures, thinking about different phases of your life. You know, and what was interesting, we, I didn't tell them how to structure it, I just said structure it. It was interesting to see how they even structured it. So some, for instance, talked about places they lived in, educational phases, types of consoles. Some talked about the girlfriends they had, because that is a way they structured their life, which is sometimes true. And the step three was, the moment the drawing is finished, um, I asked them to contextualize each of their experiences, to tell me why is that game more important than another one, and why, how is it contextualized? When did that happen? You know, which, which time of your life was that? Um, who did you play it with? Where did you play it? On which you know, console or technology did you use for that? And now what I would like to do is give you three examples of these playographies. The first one is by Olivia. Um, the names are changed, so you will never find these people, ever. And there are different patterns. So for instance, I, spent, I wrote a, a whole paper on one playography. I will just look at one pattern right now. Uh, and here, I take, um, from Olivia, I take the example of Pokemon. So in one part of the interview, she starts talking. And by the way, what Mishla is also doing is like you kind of like leave language as ugly as it happens. Um, I find that quite useful because even when you write it, it's not as sexy somehow. It's more disturbing, and I think that's what language is. Um, so I kind of like left it in there. So she's saying, so I did not have a consistent number of friends. And she's saying her parents were moving all across the states, changing jobs all the time. So she was moving almost every year in her life. But my brother was always there. So I was playing with him and, you know, beating him up and all these things. So the brother was about four or five years younger than her. He was the only consistent thing in her life. The problem is they didn't have anything in common. He was way too young for her to really participate in what she was interested in. But one day they developed, the idea, they, they found Pokemon. Pretty much her mom gave them Pokemon because she, had the, she realized they're always fighting in the car. And she heard from a friend that that game is playable by different people. So she thought she can end the fights. And she's saying, yeah, Pokemon games. And that one was definitely one because my brother and I were both into it. I mean, it was really interesting watching how my brother and I would have approached the game. And this is really key because my brother would take one Pokemon and slam through the entire game. So the idea is she realized her brother was kind of like doing, you know, like she was, she was building up different um, Pokemons and, and have like a, a, a kind of like armada of different Pokemons. And he was just building up one really strong one and smashing into her. And he would always lose, but she was so fascinated that he really thought this is the right strategy. And they kept playing that game. And what she's saying is that this game, and here she's saying, and it really sort of made me aware of the different ways you could play games. I think that sort of reasoning made me more interested in these kinds of games, like, oh, well, my brother and I played entirely different. Same game, entirely different. There are different venues, and this is the key aspect. So looking back at all the games she played, she's saying Pokemon is the most meaningful game gameplay experience she ever had. Why? Because first of all, her brother suddenly got to be a human being that she could do something with. But beside that, she also realized there is always a different venue. 
she got an artist later, and what she's saying is, every time she comes up with a solution to a problem, she remembers that time and thinks back, there must be a different way that I'm not thinking of. Because there are different approaches to problems, and she's pushing herself as an artist to always find a different view too. Just, just, and that is a very good skill for an artist, by the way, especially when you work in the video game industry, and have to change art all the time. So what is the transformation? And that's one aspect I found there are dif different forms of transformation. So transformation here means a meaningful pattern created through pl playing games gets de and recontextualized within a more general understanding about the player her herself and others. So she is taking the game experience, the pattern that she creates there, and is transferring it to her life. And it means something to her. It changes the way she thinks about herself and others. In that case, especially brother. But looking back now, she uses the pattern more and more. And the other takeaway, players, the player's pre-experiences, their biography, the social context, the connection to the game action, impacts the highly subjective, meaningful play experience. So what I'm trying to say here is, when you look at the biographies, you realize how contextualized these experiences are. They're very subjective. And that's also one critique that I would bring for Jim G's approach. Every gameplay experience is different to another. So it's, there is not one learning experience at, that players have with a game. Every player is approaching a game differently through the context. So let's go to the next playography, Siegfried. And with Siegfried, um, I'm going to look at a different aspect. I want to look at the, the shift from different technologies. So here we're talking about. Um, the Nintendo, and here the shift to the PC, which is interesting in that approach. So the shift of technology had a deep impact on his meaningful experiences. And I'm also going to focus on Ultima 7. Ultima fucking 7. Um, so, and here are parts of the interview. When the NES came out, suddenly there was this shared community at school of people. Everybody had a Nintendo. So this became a socializing component of my like, life, like overnight. So the Nintendo was a tool that he used not just to play games, but also in a certain moment when other people started playing that game, he was suddenly able to talk with them about it. And he talks a lot about friendship, especially one friendship where talking about the NES game got a really big point. But then his parents move and take him away, and he has to change school in a very stupid age to change a school. And he's saying, we moved and things got socially awkward. This is when games got more of an ins um, insul insulating agent than socializing agent. So suddenly, games turn from something he used to communicate with others to something he was pretty much using on his own and also kind of like fleeing from that conflicting situation. And PC gaming changed my entire perspective on video games. And um, Ultima 7 is a good example of that transition. It was like getting games from the future. I didn't know that NES games that I knew were technically info reports of more advanced games on more advanced hardware. So when, and then when 1991 Ultima 7 comes out and it has graphics I've never seen, it seemed like a game from the year 2005, to my mind at that time. So he played games like that before, but he was playing it on Nintendo and thinking that are Nintendo games. The moment he realizes, oh my god, there's a technology that can really do something with this game that is way more interesting, um, he was really blown away. I was completely blown away. I had also never seen games that were aimed at adults, that had adult content, and when they were not censored, which is kind of like also an interesting aspect about Nintendo, protecting kids, you know, but also kind of like having this kind of like big protection um, era about games in general. 
Atima looks and sounds like Final Fantasy, but it's opened. This sense of dense fictional world is just a matter of fact and there. That doesn't make you do anything and it's just open for you to interact with, uh, but with this enormous amount of narrative de um, density to it. This game is the game. So there are reasons why that game was so important for him um, when, you, when you look at the shift from the Nintendo to the PC. But there is also the reason that at that time, what he's saying in the other slide, games got a different aspect in his life. So from a socializing agent to something he would do on his own. So suddenly there was also a different need in games. And these games were kind of like offering him that space to explore that. So transformation, technology, and game design impact intra-individual and intra-case patterns of change. So it's, which I found very interesting to see, yes, change in technology has a strong impact on meaningful experiences people have. In his case, the change from Nintendo to PC offered him a completely new level of experiences. But it also shows that there is not one game history. And that's also an interesting critique you can kind of like get away from that. Game history cannot be understood as a generalizable single trajectory, but as a heterogeneous historical and culturally contextualized phenomena. So often in game studies, people talk about the game history. You know, What are the big games? Displayographies really show there is no game history. Every person has its own game history with own shifts and voids. And that is a really, really important aspect. And now to the third and last example, Sarah. Um, with Sarah, um, just checking time, ah, perfect. Um, so with Sarah, um, I would like to talk about Little Big Planet and more social games. So she's saying it's interesting, I guess, when she looks at her biography. I guess all of these games are games that are played with other people. That's something that ties all of them together. There's always somebody else involved. And this is not an aspect that is true for every player. It is really true for her. In her case, and here it gets clearer. And then the same thing with Settles of Catan, which is a board game. I was, I moved to this new country. I did not know anyone. And then there are these people that were really nice. And I ended up being friends with them. And the way we were friends is we had game nights. At least once a week, if not twice a week, and we rotated. So he, uh, like here, she is using games to make friends. And she realized every time she comes to a new country, to a new place where she doesn't know anybody, games are her tools to communicate with others. It's something that she found really, really helpful. The interesting thing is, that's a pattern she takes away from that. And she's saying, um, she's talking here about her high school time, a really formative period. I was experimenting with a lot of different approaches. And the one that really works for me is this, playing games. And I'm about to do another move. And the one thing that I keep thinking of, I'm moving to the city and I don't know anybody. And I want to have a game night and make friends. So she, that's something she really took away. Games are her way to communicate to others. So when she comes to a new place, the first thing she will have to think about is having a game night with new people and finding people that are interested in it. So what does transformation here mean? Games can be, tool, uh, can be used as tools to tackle issues in real life context. For her, that meant being isolated, not knowing anybody. Thus, the player needs to transfer these experiences patterns and put them into practice. And that's something um, we hardly know anything about in research. So yes, you might use tools to tackle real life problems. And yes, some players might be able to transfer that. But putting into practice means, OK, there is this pattern I realized in games. And you saw it in the three biographies that might be different. But I have to do it. And that sounds really stupid. But I have to, in real life, do it and experience how it feels that this works. And that's something um, that a lot of theoretical approaches, like, like Jim Chi, 
doesn't get to. You don't get to the point where you're transferring a pattern and then put it into action. And everybody who ever tried that knows how hard and hurtful that is when you realize, well, I was so cool online, and this does not, this doesn't work at all here. And and you know, like, but but this is a very important step. Otherwise, of course, we can say that well, Warcraft is a very very social space, and he is in that community. But to be able to transfer that and kind of like get how to communicate to others is a completely different story. So takeaway. Players interact in the space provided by the games, the technology, and the context. But what they make out of it is so much up to them and their biography and their context and the, the way that they approach that. So just to give you an idea um, how this method can be used further. So I did a workshop in New York um, at the Mobility Shift conference. And um, for instance, there I said um, I had, there were a lot of people that didn't know what to do with games. And what I try often is say, you know what? Forget games. Think about a media form that is important to you. And think about, in your looking back, what were the striking moments? What are the books? What is the song? What is the movie? What is the internet experience? I don't know. And think about it and make the, the same thing again. And I had this guy here, and he afterwards came up to me and said, if he thinks about his history, it's not a linear one. It is, he says, when he thinks about games, it's like, you know, here is, with 20, it was his peak of playing video games. So he kind of like thought, if I look back at my playography, I look at different phases that have kind of like different um, meanings. And so he tried to approach it that way. And I think there are a lot of ways to think differently about how to do these playographies in, in terms of drawing. Another thing that I would like to do, and well, I like I have to do for a book right now, is I am comparing. <laughs> I should really start working on that. So um, I want to. The next step is I'm interested in how different media experiences are colliding in playographies, and I'm doing something on sports video games. So what I'm trying to do is comparing playing a sport, watching a sport with watching a video game, uh, <laughs> playing a video game. So the idea is. Um, if you think about sports video games, um, they're very contextualized in sports. So what I, but I realized most people, for instance, if they play American football, for instance, Madden doesn't reference American football right now. It, it references watching American football right now. The way that they use aesthetic forms is it looks pretty much like watching TV. Because most people have never played American football, but a lot of people have watched it. So I'm very interested in um, when did they play the sport and what kind of like what are the events they think about while watching and how that collides with playing sports games and we did a big survey that was quantitative and now I'm um, interviewing the players of that study so what do I think are the limits of that method I think a big problem is it's retrospective so you're looking back at your history so coming from educational research and doing research on serious games and purposeful games, I wish I could say this is a method to say, and this is how we design games for social change or whatever. We cannot, you know, I can afterwards say, you know, in 2010 when the Games for Change thing was really big, that didn't work at all looking back at the playographies. But I can do that in 2015 or something. But it's very hard if I say to somebody, look at the last year and the video games that you played. That's not the same thing as looking at your life because there is kind of like a, a different order. It could be an interesting approach, but it is still retrospective. 
it's not standardizable. Um, one thing that I really learned, it's highly subjective. You can look at certain patterns and how they're repeating, and I think that's interesting, but it's not something where you can say, and this is the reason why every game, every play is, experience, is social. You know? That's not true. It's, some are for certain reasons. Histories change. So what I try to do with the interviews, after doing the interviews, I send the pleography in the interview back to the person and ask him or her to listen to it again and see if they still are agreeing. And that works, but I wonder if I would do that probably in two or three years, if they would still have the same pleiography. I think it would be interesting, it would be an interesting approach to do that, but I'm, I, I think it could be also a limitation. And there are different forms of transfer. So, um, you know, like as you saw, all the three examples I gave you and all the ones I did, people have different transfers. There are different aspects. Sometimes it is really about a pattern that is life-changing. Sometimes it is a transfer that is more about, you know, like they, they develop a new passion, a new interest. Um, some transfers are really deep and really um, radical and some others are not. It will be, I think, it's something that is a limitation right now, but that could be worked on. And all of these are explicit experiences. So, and it's interesting because um, Materov, who, who developed the theory of transformative learning, is saying, well, if you have a transformative experience, that's the point that is explicit because you reflected on it. Other people say, well, a lot of transformative experiences are not explicit. They're implicit. We don't know about it too much. We have problems talking about it. So in the pleiography, it was interesting because a lot of people never thought about their pleiographies like that. So they started to talk about it. But still, it is a, a reflective process. So I think that is a limitation um, that I see with the method. What is the potential? I think it is a really great door opener. So whenever I think it is really useful if you do research on players to start with the playography no matter what you do because you get such a strong sense of who you're talking to and the whole thing takes about an hour. And I think I, I was really impressed. I got, I got to places I didn't want to go in the interviews because it got really deep. And you don't have to do that, but I think if you want to understand players, it is a good uh, door opener. And people love to do that. That's the nicest part about the research project. People enjoy drawing their pleiographies. Um, it, is, it is interesting and they, and they love to talk about these deep experiences. You know, often if you're a researcher and you work with a person, so especially when I did the educational research and you had this unemployed person sitting there like this and he got, you know, he had to come to the interview and he did not want to talk about his transformative experiences. Here it is completely the other way around. They're like completely open and happy and, and, and they can even talk about the smell at that time. They can, they can say where they played it. They can say what they were eating, where, which, which snacks they were eating while playing that game. They can, you know, they can tap into really, really deep experiences. And that's something um, I hardly know from any other methods. You get really close to the subjective viewpoints. You know, like people never pretend to be objective. They really say, this, this is why I liked it. And they often talk, my, my, my sister didn't and my friends didn't. And it unpacks the context and the subjectivity. And that is, for me, the most interesting thing. They really contextualize the experience. You know, they don't just say, that's, a, that's why I like that game. They also say, and by the way, at that time, um, I had social problems because my parents got divorced, blah, blah, blah. They are very, very important contextual aspects. What I find another potential in the method is it's very adoptable and adjustable. Um, you can use it with different media forms. Um, you can use different um, interview techniques with it. And it's really spreadable. Um, so I realize um, in workshops or, or with students, you can really send people out there and say, make pleiographies with your friends. And, and you can just do it. You, know, it doesn't ha you don't have to have a lot of 
method skills, which means if you do a bigger project, it will be easy to train people to do that and get a lot of input on different players. And it is totally under construction. So I think what I like about it is moving. Um, it's not a finished tool. It's not that I say, you know, this is it. I think this is, it's an interesting thing. And, and if I will talk about this in a year, it, it, will have been, it will have changed, and especially, for instance, if I look at the now comparing different media forms, like in sports video games, I already realize, oh, I have to think differently about that. You know, I, I'm not sure if I can say, you know, first make the bubbles about your watching um, certain sports or playing certain sports and then the video games. I think I have to develop new ways of approaching, combining different media forms. So this is, these are my traces of playographies, my understanding um, of that method. And, um, and that was it. Thank you very much. So Constantine, thanks very much. A terrific, terrific talk. Really terrific. Um, questions from the audience? So great talk. Thanks for that. Um, I, I was sort of interested by the uh, the fellow who was talking about Ultima 7. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think there was a really revealing um, quote or, or part of that quote where he said that, that this game is the game. Mm -hmm. And uh, th that sort of got me thinking that seems to be there seems to be sort of a, an impulse towards culmination with players a lot of the times where their whole gaming experience is sort of searching for what the game for yeah. them is. Um, in, in your research, in, in following up this methodology, did, do you find any players who sort of use that culminatory language about games that are more strictly linear and have an endpoint and maybe not necessarily replayable or continuously playable in the same way as, say, an open-ended RPG or mm. you know, a lot of times sports games players say the same sort of thing? Are there players who endlessly revisit you know, uh, what we would think of as closed-ended games in that way? So what I found is... Yes, there are these players that kind of like have their own, in their biography, have a history of a certain kind of game that it kind of like tabbing into deeper and deeper. And sometimes even a company, like the way they say from now on, I really played origin games or something, you know. Um, but the other thing I found, there are certain shifts. So there are often players, and, and, and what I realized is it, it often has to do with the technology too. So for instance, you, ha you are a Nintendo, a Nintendo boy or girl, and you think this is it. And then you suddenly, you, you shift to PC, you think this is it, then you kind of like come to role playing games. And what I found is, and that, that could also be a research subject on its own, I realized for instance, a lot of Americans stop playing games in college. They're really stressed out for unknown reason, like they're really like studying, and they kind of like stop playing games for about a year or two, and then they go come back. But they come back differently, they come back more and it depends, some stayed on it, but a lot of them were like, okay, from now on I had to focus more on what I play and where I, I spend time on. And that's like, that was one shift that I found. Then they would say, from now on, I could not play you know, role-playing games that much anymore because I really had just a limited amount of time and therefore I focus on specific games, you know? Um, so I, it, but it is interesting. So there was a one that there is kind of like, there are some players that stay with one game genre and, and like no matter what. And there are others that have certain shifts. And, um, and especially, of course, um, the older they get, um, some like almost stop playing. And it's funny because in, in some of the play, um, playographies, when they have a gap, 
they're really embarrassed. They're like, oh my God, what did I play when I was 25? Like, I must have played something. And they're like, oh, I think I didn't. I did like, a nothing is important at that time. Or the other way around is that people played a lot and looking back, it doesn't matter. They said like, I played all the time, but it doesn't matter. You know, I played, um, so for instance, I even had, a, um, had, had one interview where, where she was talking about playing World of Warcraft for a long time. But because of certain experiences she had, she was not happy about that. And she was like, that was really big for me. But looking back at it now, you know, like it, it was so problematic for her. So she, she gave it a big circle, but she said kind of like my takeaway was that afterwards I really wanted to stop playing games and change in that aspect too. Um, just jump in here. Um, so you gave your, your sort of methodological uh, references. They're intriguing. And um, Jerome Bruner pops into my mind when I hear this, mm -hmm. who had a, okay, he's a therapist and his task is different from yours. But here's the question. So Bruner just says, you know, write something and, and then he assesses it based on, do you use first person singular or mm -hmm. do you use third person? Or he'll sort of analyze a lot of the strategies you've used as a writer yeah. uh, in order then to come to some kind of insights. Y your approach seems really rich and intriguing on that level. And yet on the other hand, it seems kind of st like standard, like there aren't a lot of parameters to represent. You can sort of talk about the periods of your life in, in very revealing and yeah. different ways. Yeah. But graphically, it seems kind of, um, I mean, the line is there and that's a lot more constraint than just writing a writing yeah. something. Yeah. Have you thought about like other more expansive ways in which players might express themselves other than in this kind of linear um, form? Um, it's interesting. So I, um, I thought about it. Um, I never thought about writing, I have to say. Um, I, so I, it's interesting. So one thing that I, I try to do is when I send, send the interviews back to the people, I often got emails back where they said they included certain stories. They said, oh my God, I forgot this game. And then they write a text about it. But interesting thing is, um, for me, it was hard because I didn't even see it as an interview anymore. So it was text I hardly ever used. So it would be, it's an interesting idea to also look at text they're writing. So one thing that I tried is different ways of drawing. Mm -hmm. You know, so for instance, um, so I tried to give them a certain freedom and say, you can, you can make bubbles, but if you have a different solution, do it differently. So I had, for instance, um, people that were using different colors for that. Um, but I really stayed on the visual, the visual aspect. So I did not focus on writing too much. And I think what was interesting at that time, and you know, maybe that's something that is in development. So what is what Mishla is doing in his interviews? He's even saying, like, analyzing is also so biased, you know. So and and even you know, like, if you think about um, approaches from Bruna, or still there is this idea of objectivizing subjectivity and even if they say you know we really want to keep the subjectivity but it's the idea of that I, that I bring something objective to this subjective aspect and what Mishla is saying that does not work you know let's stay let's keep it subjective like don't even try to objectify and so he's really just saying what are certain patterns really like raw patterns so pretty much when I looked at the interview I was almost also drawing so in comparison to the pleiographies I was kind of like drawing which are the big experiences that they talk about and what are the certain patterns. So I was looking more for patterns. Mm -hmm. But it would be interesting to combine different materials, definitely. So I, I can just say it would be interesting to, to do it. Yeah, because I was thinking graphically, like if left to my own devices, I'd probably really 
start with what really was important to me and might have things spatially arranged yeah. quite differently. Yeah. But the paraphrasing part really helps to solve that too because you can say, here's what I see yeah. and, and that, yeah, terrific. Yeah, and, and like that's something I did not focus too much on the interview, but but paraphrasing um, also with that because you can even sh like look at the bubble, like point at the bubble and say, so you just said this about that, am I correct? And uh, it is interesting because I also realized when you do the interview, you show the person the drawing. So they are talking while they look at their own drawing, which is an interesting tool too, because I think when you have reading, it's hard to look at it at once, but you can look at that drawing. Todd. Now it's my turn. Um, the reason that people stop playing games in college is college, for the record. Uh, no, but I, believe it or not, I've, I've had people tell me the exact same things, uh, in, even in non-related research to historiography. They're just like, yeah, I stopped playing games in college. Um, the question I had, though, is that, uh, I mean, kind of the, the, the cool thing about qualitative methodology to me is that you, you get down to, to such granular mm -hmm. um, looks at people's experience, and you've drilled down to the bedrock, I mean, <laughs> with this method in the sense that you're down to, you're down to the very tiniest examples. Um, but as I was hearing stories about people, as I was hearing stories about my brother and I played Pokemon, I really liked Ultima 7, uh, part of me was thinking, you know, part of the weakness of, of interviews is that you're asking people to recount things, mm -hmm. right? Is that, um, you know, which is why it's usually combined with, with other more observational stuff mm -hmm. too. And I have to wonder, how would you work something? I, I kept wondering, if it would be interesting to see these people play these games mm. now, right? Like you, you hand me your, your playography and you're like, Oh, you were really into, um, Contra back on the Nintendo. Well, let's sit down and play some Contra. Right. And then just to, to, to watch them as they play. Um, that was just something that was running oh, through my right. head, but you know, how would you, how would you kind of expand, expand the methodology beyond just the the, the historiographic part mm -hmm. right like to 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 get to kind of seeing more of the the affect and the the things that are not necessarily just verbalized mm -hmm. memory um i think i think that's a really interesting idea i i yeah i think i think the big question would be what do you want to get out of it so I, I think kind of like tabbing back to the game would be really awesome but then like one thing that I realized, so I did four studies so far with that method. And every time I had a different approach. So for instance, in that one, my main idea was looking on the impact of technology. So how, so you might've seen it in the other ones that often the technology was not included in the bubbles. Um, so I didn't even, in the first interviews, I didn't even care about which console they were using. And here I was really interested in how different consoles impact um, also what you play and, and how you play it. And for instance, there is a certain reason why some consoles are, are used differently than others. Um, so for instance, if you take here um, Ultima fucking seven, uh, <laughs> which, which is a way better name for the game, um, you can on one hand look on the impact you know, that the technology had at that time, but you can also, for instance, as I mentioned, there are certain life shifts here. Um, so here, for instance, here there is like, here Siegfried moved to another town because of the parents against his will. And like, as he said, like these are like, here is a, um, from, from a more social component, talking about games with friends to a more playing it on his own. So it would be interesting to say, 
and if let's let's focus on the isolation versus um, social part of play, and let's play that game again and talk about that experience. You know, so that could be interesting to say. I think I think, but you I think you might have to be clear and say we we focus on one pattern now. Um, I don't know, but or maybe you tr maybe it would be something worth trying and seeing what what we get out of it. Let's do it, Todd. I like it. Thanks very much. Uh, just a comment on that. Mishler wrote an earlier book uh, in which he analyzed uh, the interviewing uh, of medical doctors with mm -hmm. patients, and mm -hmm. he was uh, it was quite an important book because uh, he showed through this uh, process of. Uh, interruption, uh, what he called it, uh, I forget, it was interruption analysis or something mm -hmm. like that. He would stop people right in the middle of the process and ask them to tell them what they were doing. And through this process, he was able to show that uh, these medical doctors were sort of commanding the space and that they were using this sort of scientific model on people who didn't understand the science. And it was a major piece of work. but. Uh, it goes back to what Don was just saying. He was interrupting people in the process as he was using these methodologies for uh, interacting with the people he was uh, studying. So there may be some element of that uh, in what you're doing here. Of uh, If you go back to his work, since you're already using some of his methodologies and yeah. looking at that, because uh, that was a pretty significant work. It sounds, it sounds, yeah. For, uh, so first of all, like um, I, I agree. So I looked at some text. I did not read that other book, but I was reading other texts that he was writing. Mm -hmm. And what I love about this guy is his honesty. He's, yeah. he's, he's really talking about what he's doing. And I think that's also something that most researchers don't do, you know. Um, they, because also the discourse is so harsh. You know, if you submit to a journal, you know, they are like, you know, they have certain standards and you get all these reviews back. So people are pretty much hiding and, and, and pretending. And I think that really just works if you're really honest. So if you make a mistake, so let's talk about a mistake, for instance. I made a mistake um, here. So my, you know, I wrote about learning for disappointment. So my theory was, and that was pretty stupid looking back now. Here you see the phases that she made about, um, so I did not want to interrupt in the interview, so I afterwards said, you know, structure your pleiography. And in that case, you know, she's talking about elementary school, and um, here we have the, the college, I don't play games um, phase, um, where she's saying, you know, like, I think I played a little bit, but pretty much nothing, post-college phase, and then graduate phase. And I had the idea that there are certain shifts, and I was interested in crises. So I was interested, and she said, like, I was really lonely here, and then the idea was, so which game got you out of that? So I, I thought, I was looking, I asked them in the beginning in, in that interview, um, so let's look back at that crisis you mentioned. Why did you play that game? And I tried it a few times and I never got there. I was like, they don't, they don't tell me, they, don't, they just don't tell me that the crisis was kind of like, the, the game was a catalyst to get out of that crisis. It's not true. It's, Yes, they get something specific out of the, that game and the time, but they all know, no, the game didn't get me out of there. You know, I got myself out of there. And I felt really naive realizing it in the interviews, you know, that, that, that no, like I, I was biased on that. You know, I know that that's not how games are played or at least not in my interviews. So um, did, I think to, to kind of like write about that and, and be honest about the limits of the method and kind of like, I think it's so important to carry it forward and it would be, you know, if you think about it, but the, the, the question is, are we living in a world where, where I can now, like, let's try, I try the stopping 
you know, and then paraphrasing or I tried the, you know, um, playing the games with them or using text or something with it. Um, I, I really want to do that, but um, will it be publishable? Um, in this world right now, it will be very hard to publish that stuff, which is sad because that is really important, I think, you know, but it could be something you can use in a class, you know, you can in a class explore that. But I think it's, it's a bit sad that, that research is coming to a point that is so journal driven, driven that it's more about pretending than being honest. And I think that's what I loved about Mischler. This yeah, but it's a good thing if you're, you know, like if you had your career and you're like, okay, now by the way, <laughs> this is what I really think. I think that's, you know, it's something you can do. I cannot right now. So, um, yeah, thank you. I think here was a question. Yeah, um, yeah sorry. Um, sure. Thanks. I was just uh, thinking about um, what you had said in your comment about the. Uh, uh, relying on 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 memory, you know, and all that things that that might exclude in somebody's experience. But that made me think about what you um, had said in some of the, uh, you know, your look at Jim G. You know, how he, how can you capture these things? How do they carry over? How do they transfer? What's um, what I think is interesting about what you do remember years later um, are the things that were transformative. So, for example, in the case of Olivia. Mm -hmm. Um, she remembers this experience not just because it was a social experience and the only time she wasn't punching her brother in the car, mm -hmm. um, but also because she, for the first time, was able to see that there are other ways of thinking about the world and negotiating systems. And mm -hmm. so she internalized that. And so this experience happens to say, well, this is a, this is a pattern. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a, that's a, a transformative moment. Mm -hmm. And um, of course those things happen and they don't enter into our memory. They don't happen consciously and we can't trace yeah. those. But this is one way of getting out those things that did stick, that yeah. did transfer beyond the game. Uh, very interesting because um, I think the, the, the stuff we don't, cannot even talk about is probably the most interesting one, you know, and, and especially um, what you also find in these interviews is, is so if, if you look at the whole thing, you find that she, she is struggling with certain patterns a certain time and then she has a transformative experience where she really gets it. And then, you know, so if you look at the whole thing, you find that. But, you know, I think, I think that's, my, that's my ongoing research to think about how can we talk about transformative experiences, you know, and I think it is just so hard. Um, because, you know, first of all, talking about it is hard. Um, and second of all, um, this, this kind of like that you have to have it explicit, you know. And of course, you, you know, like that's what psychologists and therapists are good in, kind of like, you know, they know that you're in transformation, you don't. You know, you just feel crap, crappy, you know, but um, I, I find it interesting. And I also find it interesting what what's the rule of technology in all of that, you know, um, is it is it important? Is it not important? I think that's that's a, a big question for me. And I, I think it's, it is getting us a bit closer. It doesn't get us there. Um, yeah. Thanks. So the uh, I like this method and I think that uh, to me the main value of it is that it's just a way to resist master narratives because that's always a really hard thing uh, to resist. Uh, there is a tendency to there is a tendency towards it in academia and in game journalism. And I'm wondering so would it be how would you this is actually a, a pre-question I have another question but the so you said at the beginning, like you want to get away from anecdotes, mm -hmm. right? But these these are anecdotes. Yes, I know. So how, like, is the is when you say you want to get away from anecdotes, are you saying that you want to get away from 
researchers and scholars using their own anecdotes and thinking that that is somehow representative of you know some kind of some kind of general player that they somehow imagine they represent uh, and is getting away from that. So therefore, just acknowledging the multiplicity of subjectivity, uh, subjectivity through anecdotes, we are somehow getting, getting away from it. Is that correct? Yeah, I think I, I totally agree. Um, so these are explicit anecdotes, and there are anecdotes of different players. And if you look at them, it's very hard to make the statement of the player. Uh, you know, like, so I think um, when I meant the time of anecdotes is <coughs> over, I mean the time of anecdotes that are pretending not to be anecdotes. The, you know, like, um, so I also work for age rating, for instance, and, and when you sit there and there is a, an age decision for a game and somebody's saying, well, but my son is, I always get a shiver because like, I don't care about your son. You know, like, that, that is not an argument. You're like, you don't tell me um, that, you know, NHL has to get a 16 because your son played it and he was distracted by the fighting scene. I find it highly problematic because that's, that's not the way we can approach that. You know, the moment you would look at different anecdotes from different kids in a certain age, you would get, get a different picture and see it is very relative. And if certain patterns repeat, you know, you can start to think about may, maybe NHL really should get a 16 plus, you know. But so I think, first of all, explicit anecdote and also anecdotes where you talk about how you approach them, where the limits are and stuff like that, you know. So if we're going to whip game studies into shape with this, uh, how would we do it? L like what's the kind of crap we have to stop doing because it's just making everything bad? So I think it's funny if I look back at my older text. So for instance, I was writing once a text about Shadow of the Colossus. And when I look back at it, I always say the player. And I'm like, I'm in, and I'm like what am I saying here? I don't know anything. And I, I think I told you that experience, you know, like, so I talked about passion and learning in games and Shadow of the Colossus. And then there was the game marathon, I think two years ago, and there was this team playing Shadow of the Colossus. And I was like waiting for the final moment and I walked up there and was like, oh my God, now, you know, passionate learning, tears. And they finished the game and they were like, ah, cool, and left the room. And I was like, guys, did you get it? And they're like, yeah, I, th I, I got it. Like, I'm tired. And I was like, no, you know, like, um, but I said the player is experiencing this and I had, what turned out, one player had it, five didn't, you know? So it, it made it really clear for me that every time I say the player, I should really think about what am I talking about here? Should I say me? Uh, me, you know, like, and you're a good example, like in the way you approach games, you're always talking about yourself. You're saying, this is what I experienced in this game. Because you, you know, like this is what you talk about. You don't say, this is what they experience in the game. And I think that's, that's the difference. And that's, I think, my takeaway. So I have uh, one comment I wanted to make about that as a follow-up is that uh, one of the things that happens a lot in games is we're trying to get away from uh, over kind of grandiose statements, right? We have to get away from this. But then you find that it's just everywhere else in society too, mm. right? So I mean, uh, to me, this is interesting because it's pointing not just at a problem with games, but pretty much with everything, right? I mean, it's not, people would say, for example, that like, Everybody cries at you know frame 462 of Schindler's List. That's also not true, right? So uh, this is hopefully this is like a Pandora's box that we can open mm. and completely reconfigure everything we know. That's it, an interesting. It's an interesting thing because um, what you get through these playographies is that people really express themselves, and you you get it how unique it is. You know, um, 
It, it's interesting, and I think you know, if people talk about Schindler's List, they're also referencing the big narrative. You know, they they are talking about it with friends. Did you cry at that scene or not? You know, um, and with games, they're more complex. You know, like there are, people get different parts of it. Of course, like again, like Shadow of the Colossus would have been one where I thought, yes, that's that might be a scene. Um, but I think even if, if society is doing that, if game studies is doing something interesting as a research discipline, we should just kind of like push ourselves to be better than that and, and, and just be honest about that. And if you say, you know, by the way, yes, I wrote my article about Shadow of Gloss, I was talking about my experience and I always said the player. Well, okay, um, I will not try not to do that anymore. And it's not easy <laughs> because I realize one reason, I, I spent an hour doing the cover of the Jim Chi critique book yeah, um, with Photoshop. So I really wanted to give that talk. Um, I should show it again so it was worth doing it. Um, <laughs> so I really wanted to give that talk. But then I realized I don't have any data. I don't have any evidence that what I say is better than what Jim G is saying. It is, you know, and he's better in doing that than me. So I realized, no, I, if I would focus on my research and say, these are five aspects in Jim G that I would might consider, so let's research them. And then I can write that book, you know, or write that article. But right now I would just, you know, talk about anecdotes and kind of like, and, and not be honest about that. And I think that's the problematic part. Along those lines. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> so let's, 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 as a hypothetical say, then a few weeks you're going to be talking to a methods class who want to know, uh, how to research players. This is hypothetical completely. Yeah. Um, really, and here's the question that I have uh, that's along the lines of what Matt wanted to know is that, so what, it, because what we're studying dictates the method, right? And I think probably one of the worst things you can do is go, I wanna study do something using this and that's what I'm gonna do regardless of what logic says, mm -hmm. right? So what are the, what are the questions that would really dictate using this method, right? Like, what is the research we can do that would really benefit from using playographies as an explorative mm -hmm. method? So I think the big thing for me is how do players make meaning of what of the gameplay experiences? Like, so the meaning making is something you can, I think, measure with that. And um, that's one thing. And the other one is contextualizing gameplay experiences. So I think, for instance, if you say, let's say um, you're interested in fighting games and um, just, just in theory, you know, and you want to study, you know, kind of like um, um, certain esport people in fighting games in theory, um, you know, and you would have certain approaches, uh, maybe in ethnographical. Um, if you would do these playographies in combination with that, you would also get like a different puzzle piece piece of that story. You know, we're not talking about truth here. We're talking about a bigger picture about that player. And it would be interesting to see why are certain people that get almost professional or like in competitions about a fighting game, how did they end up where they are? What experiences do they share at a certain patterns? So I would say, first of all, method mix. Um, it is useful for that. And kind of like for me, for me, and, and maybe I have to think about that if I would give that class in a few weeks, I would have to prepare myself to think about it. But for me, it is we can learn more about the context of play, which is normally very hard to get if you're not there, you know. Um, and I think in, when you say that, especially the combination of both could be so interesting to say, maybe I am there and maybe I'm with the player and studying a certain community, but I also know more about 
their biographies. So I remember there was a grad student, I think two years ago, she was researching female players at MIT in the dorms. Um, Rick Olos, yeah. Yeah, Hillary. Um, and for instance, in that case, it would have been awesome to use that too to get a bigger picture of these players in their pleiographies. And then, you know, you can still make an ethnographical study about the time and what happens and who's playing what, etc. And But also seeing where they come from. And, and it, the, awesome, the, the cool thing is, what if you do that study a few years later and see if that had a big impact on them when they look back? Uh, this actually just struck me from how you had just said that. And that one of the things I think is difficult when you're trying to um, get people into groups when you do studies. I know when I did my master's thesis, um, I split people into beginner, intermediate, and advanced. Uh, that was the stupidest possible thing I could have done. Um, I had one advanced player that I judged based solely on the amount of time he spent during a week playing games. He spent all of it playing one game. Mm -hmm. And when asked to play The Legend of Zelda, freaked out after 45 minutes and bowed out of the study because it wasn't that game, right? <laughs> so... Uh, it, it would be interesting, actually, to use playographies as a way to to kind of gauge people's investment mm -hmm. uh, um, in the activity, right? Where if you extended it not just to what games were important, but what things were you doing? Like, like did you have a subscription to Nintendo Power when it was the only video game in the universe? Mm -hmm. Or the only video game magazine in the universe, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, you know, or do you still read these websites? You mm -hmm. know, when did you first discover this, 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 and this? So I, that was also that was something that just occurred to me too. So one thing that I, I can just say, like one thing that I, I did with Philip um, is we we so Philip had the idea was also the question, where do you get your games from? You know, um, because uh, a lot of of people, um, you know, especially in the eighties and nineties, um, like they didn't even know that these games were ever sold. They were like, hey, that's what I get from my friend. Or like, you know, so kind of like pirating and, and copying games was was very usual and often. And that was the approach that he said, there are countries like in Europe, for instance, where I grew up, there was like one store in Vienna that was selling video games. And I wouldn't go to Vienna to buy that. So one person got over there, bought it and copied it. And then suddenly 100 people were playing it. And we thought that's how you do it. You know, we thought that's, <laughs> isn't that the deal? We didn't think that anybody's making money out of games, you know, at that time. I know. Sorry, I did not do that. My sister, <laughs> get her. So, um, so the idea was: so where do you get the games from? What magazines did you read? Um, and also, so one thing that I also realized: I know we're not generalizing, but if I would generalize, I would say every game, every play experience has always a social component, even if nobody is included. It could be you play on your own, but you play on your own and for a certain reason and you might communicate with others about it or you don't want to communicate with anybody because you want to be alone now which is in a certain sense social again but contra-social in a certain sense you are, you think about others while you play alone and um, that's something that got, was really strong in all the interviews this this kind of like this social component but again like it turns out social is so different from player to player um, so i think there, there, there could be different venues to go to So one other thing I'm just curious about, um, looking at the the sort of relational way of reading different players' playographies, it seems like there's some interesting correspondences that come out. The obvious one is the uh, the college 
fallow mm-hmm. period that everyone seems to go through. Um, what I'm wondering is, is there any correspondence between where the first really big bubble shows up? I mean, is there a certain uh, age period? Is there a certain number of years after a player's uh, first somewhat meaningful experience that they learn how to read games in a way that's meaningful to them and then they have mm. subsequent transformative experiences? Because it, it seems to me like there seems to be a magic period around 10, 12, 14 years of age yeah. where... Yeah, um, yes, yes. Um, so, so for instance, in that interview, and I wrote a paper that if you're interested. So she is talking um, about a card game, and she says she remembers the day when she, when she started cheating, and that is her first gameplay experience. So she played card games, and her parents were kind of like playing with her, and suddenly she realized that they don't really are not invested in playing with her because you know like a kid so you're like sitting there and you're like and she realized that she can do stuff that they don't realize and she was really she thought it's part of the game and it took them very long to realize that she's like you know like she said like she cheated for weeks and suddenly the parents are like what did you just do and she's like what do you mean like that's what i did uh, like the last months and and she said it was really interesting for her to see that the reaction to suddenly they took her serious and I think that's that's an interesting thing. Another thing that I found is brothers and sisters. You know, so so for siblings, for people with siblings, they first play alone, and there is a moment where the brother and the sister gets interested in as a play partner, and also the parents and other like friends and neighbors. So I had the sense every story had the neighbor in it, the neighbor with the other machine that had the other games. <laughs> you would go over and suddenly experience something you have never seen before. You know, or a lot, you know, talked about, um, you know, like, it, it, and it, it is really true that, that um, 10, you know, like here you can see um, there's, that is very seldom that people can really talk about it before five. Um, and here, like, it starts about here. But Siegfried is a very special player. Um, so, but no, but it's really true that, that um, there are certain, age similarities here we have 10 years again and for instance what she's saying here for instance this is called the cave game and what it was that her her cousins were using a blanket above um, a chair and she was hiding underneath and they were said that's her cave and she for her that was like the first game she ever played with somebody else so i think it would be interesting to do that and, and analyze the, the patterns um, and, and also realize like child devel- developmental aspects of it. You know, like when are you when are you playing what games and when does that change? I think is a really interesting question. Uh, probably thematic correspondences too. You know, what, what speaks to players in that that fertile period? Yeah, agreed. So, what are the youngest players that you've interviewed? And I ask because, of course, the ecosystem is yeah. An older generation might start on cards and board games and and or playing cave, but but there are a lot of games pitched to young kids and kids who start there. Oh, the youngest player I've interviewed was 21. So I've never interviewed anybody younger than under that, that 21. Would be really interesting to do that. Like I I, I think it would be really great idea. Um, where did it go? Yeah, I think so. That's the this is the youngest person I've interviewed. Um, and and what I what is also interesting by the way is. If, you, if you're now a new generation, there are certain, in our history of games that doesn't exist, there are certain highlights that they play differently. So, for instance, um, in the interview with Siegfried, you know, when he talked about Ultima fucking 7, um, that, that striked him so much because that game, you know, like, he had the sense of a new time. So, for instance, 
um, in, I think, oh, I, didn't, I did not use it. So in one interview, so for instance, uh, a girl suddenly starts to play old games, which are for most of, in my generation, were new games, kind of like you grew into it. So she would suddenly, if you play Monkey Island, the first Monkey Island now, it's like a retro game, you know? So they are like, they have to have like an emulator to play that game or something. And it's like really looking back at old games and then they would start to play, have a phase where they play old games. And there is one interview where she said she realized that you can have a play passion that is beyond what is cool. Like, so you can, she realized I can, there is such a big history of games. I can play games from the 80s and 90s that are really awesome. Nobody will care about that. I cannot talk to anybody about it. But, but I can have my own coolness of games, you know? So it will be interesting to also see when are they tapping back into like historical games um, and you know, at what time and how does this make meaning to them. And the structure of reception studies, let's say in, in, from literary perspective, has, has not tended to privilege historical reception. Mm -hmm. It's tended to be a, a kind of a presentist affair. Do you know of studies like this in other, I mean, you gave the media one yeah. writ large, yeah. but in say literature or, or exposure to painting? Are there other folks doing parallel studies in other so when, when I, So when I search for it, I, I, it's interesting. So what they often do is they do, inter it's interesting. So they say they do an interview about, you know, like the movies that were important to you. But then they ask, you know, which movie is most important to you? Like that's often the approach. And then somebody's saying, you know, looking back, that movie is it. But, but therefore you kind of like destroy already the whole, like, you know, the whole richness of, of that experience, you know. So I'd never found something where um, in different media forms where they, they were using that. I found more where they looked at single experiences in interviews and like and, and drawings and stuff like that. But, it, but I also have to say that um, it would be worth spending more time and also searching for other stuff. You know, like I, I, I spent like a few months on developing the method and I could have been, I think it would be interesting to go on with that. Here is one. Okay, so kind of two really quick questions. Um, I was just wondering, first of all, did most of the games that people remembered as being meaningful in their lives consist of like digital games or video and computer games? Or was it also, I mean, you mentioned like one of them had card games, but yeah. was it mostly just kind of video and computer games? Or And um, the other question that's kind of related to that is like the ones that people, that's really stood out for people. Did you notice any sense of like, these are the games that were also really, really popular during that time. For instance, like Pokemon was, yeah. like you couldn't be in yeah. elementary school without having played yes. it at some point. So like, I'm just wondering if you found any kind of that relationship. So um, yeah, so first of all, um, I would say coming back to the, the game, um, no. Um, I have to say the interesting thing is I heard Pokemon three times, Pokemon, but different different histories of Pokemon, like different stories, why it was important. So interesting thing is that, that Pokemon clearly offered something very interesting too as a game design. Like, you know, they, they, it, so yes, that game uh, really offered something really interesting to a lot of people in a certain time, but you also mentioned, mentioned everybody was playing it, you know? The interesting thing is also everybody was playing Mario, but the interesting thing about Pokemon, everybody was playing it together. And that comes back to, yes, social experiences are more meaningful. Um, they are more important to these people. And that's, that's I think, the, like the imp important takeaway. That's maybe it's not so much about Pokemon. It's more about Pokemon really got the social play 
into that. Um, and I have like one woman that is now doing biographies just with Pokemon. So she's looking at people who love Pokemon and does that now just with one game. Um, you're laughing because you loved it so much too or because you hated it? My best friend at the time, and still, I don't want to. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Off the record. Off the record. So we were walking home, and there was a Pokemon card on the ground. So when the trading card game out, so that was a video game. And we both like ran for it and had a huge fight over who thought, who thought about seeing it first. Who thought about picking it up first. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Okay, so no worries. There is no Pokemon. Uh, just quickly, um, um, say so for the other question, um, um, yeah, I, I opened it up. I said, I said um, games, and they talked about, um, like, for instance, one person said Bridge as their game. Um, Settlers of Catan was mentioned a few times, too, you know. So, um, and it and also kind of like was a strong mix between different games. I thought that was also healthy not to just say just video games. Um, on the other hand, it would also be interesting to think about certain games have have certain potentials and aspects. You know. Yeah, sorry. Oh, um, I, I wanted to ask a similar thing about Pokemon. Uh, you mentioned you know, people are also playing Mario, but mm -hmm. I think what's really interesting about Pokemon is that it had a very kind of a transmedia approach in there. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a cartoon, there was a, the cards. So it, it, had, it had many different dimensions yeah. for it to be a significant aspect of people's lives when they can oh, you know, watch yeah. a cartoon after school and then play with their friends maybe yeah. during recess things like that. And I was just wondering if you have any other insight like um, in, in, the, in these other, other modes where, mm. where gaming is tied to some other form of media as well. So um, first of all, if you think about it, it's completely true. It, it really sticks out too because of, of course afterwards there were certain transmedia experiences that were big and popular. But, but in that combination, Pokemon was quite unique. You know, they, they did an excellent job in that. And the other thing, for instance, that, that, I, that I heard from child psychology is interesting thing about Pokemon. Most games, when you play them or, or movies, there is the big hero and you are the small kid and you kind of like identify with the big hero, like He-Man, like the masters of the universe. The interesting thing with Pokemon is it's you, you know? It, you are the same person, you just have monsters that are strong for you. So the person can stay him or herself and kids, you know, I think what I, what I often, what I really like is this notion of childhood is horrible. You know, like growing up is really hard. It's not fun at all. And I hate the idea of that when people think about childhood like this romantic idea of beauty and happiness. It is really tough. It is, it is you know, like it's horrible. So um, this, this idea of being in power is really important for kids because if you're a clever kid, you realize you don't have any power. You're like the, weak, the weakest chain in, in the society because nobody cares what you're doing and saying or whatever. So kind of like having these emotions, like these experiences of power is something kids go for. You're not interested in this. And I think but Pokemon did such a clever job and you are still the weak small kid with that big, big monsters. And maybe it's worth fighting for the card because the monster is so good. Um, yeah, but, um, but it will be interesting also from a transmedia experience to look at different um, I'm thinking, I'm like right now, nothing comes to mind where I would really say there was such a transmedia format that was as successful in the interviews. But it would be also interesting to look at different generations.
So I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in the graphical aspect of this. Uh, and uh, I mean, one of the things is just uh, there's so many ways in which you can imagine comparativity here. Uh, and I'm, I'm wondering if you've ever had the experience of uh, having the same person do the same, go through the same process twice. Um, mm, interesting. So now I would go to Olivia and ask her again to draw uh, yes. pleiography. Yes. Yes. That would be interesting. Sort of. Uh, and, and I suppose what this is really uh, a prelude to is, is how do you expand this technique? Because it, it, it seems it captures something really interesting. And yeah. the question is, what is it capturing? <laughs> and and uh, I mean, you've said a lot here about what it, what it, what it is in, in some of the dimensions you're talking mm -hmm. about. But uh, it seems to me that a methodology like this is uh, worth trying to push in different kinds of directions. Like, what would it be like to take uh, 10 people who had all worked in the same or who were talking about uh, the same period, uh, same cohort and so forth, uh, and see what they come up with. Uh, so again, I'm just yeah. sort of thinking about comparativity and some of the, uh, uh, I know this is qualitative, but some of the quantitative mm -hmm. possibilities here. So. I so first of all, the idea of, of doing it again is really interesting. Um, so I would say, I, 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 by the way, I think every game scholar should do that this year is healthy, like to do your own pleiography. And I did mine, I think three times because like I, I, I did it once to test it. Then I was like, now, now seriously. And then, uh, you know, so um, I did it on my own. So it would also be interesting to have game scholars do that. Maybe you do your own ones over and over again. And I think that the interesting thing about this or what I really like is in a seminar, if I, if I can, I can teach somebody to do that in about five minutes and then I go, can go out and do that, you know? So if you think about a seminar and you have students and each of the students doing five of these, you can get enormous amount of data to, and then, you know, like, oops, goodbye. Um, to compare that would be, re I, th I really like that here. Um, and I think it would really be possible. And, and again, I think what we learned from Mishla is the method and what Todd said, that the method will also develop further and also change the research question by that. So I think by exploring the meth method, you will also go come to new places with it. Um, so, so at some, at some point, as much as we acknowledge, you know, subjectivity and multiple perspectives, at some point we, we, we kind of have to make generalizations and, uh, uh, you know, just to have some kind of an observation uh, right. So, because I mean, there are there. You know, we want to move away from master narratives, but uh, you know, the reason why we want to study individuals is because we do suspect there are connections between people and some. So there are shared experiences, and two people are not identical, mm -hmm. but you can identify the people. You know, might be in groups and have some kind of shared experience. So, how would you take this? Uh, how, what would you feel would be the kind of proper, rigorous way to move towards mm -hmm. something like that using this method? So, um, yes, I agree. Um, we will not tell anybody. Um, so, for instance, if I looked at all the patterns, like in the, in the first paper I wrote, I, I, I looked at... So I think this notion of there are certain patterns that are repeated, and then I can say, well, if I interview students from MIT, from that culture, I realize there are certain patterns. And for instance, 
how important pre-experiences in and how important biography context is is for instance one of the generalizable patterns that I find you know so you, you can look at different um, you can say there is no game history there are unique ones you know but you can say certain games stick out more than others you can say you know child developmental aspects it's interesting that certain patterns um, a lot of people start playing when they're about three or four and they have a high peak when they're about 10 you know and then with teenagers and then the college gap so that it could be interesting to look at certain repeating structures um, but and then of course you could also compare if you would think about a large-scale study compare different people that have experienced it with Altima 7 you know and say how did they get there and then compare these patterns so I think to compare patterns and and being clear about saying this is not the truth but this is patterns that keep repeating is an approach that I would say is doable with this but without without saying every player you know Pokemon is the game you know um, you can say well for for these players that are have these patterns yes that's true um, for them so I would say it, to think about repeating patterns and similarities of patterns in biographies is something you can definitely look at with this one here without saying the player does I think Constantine thanks very much it's a really it's a really exciting and generative um, approach and thanks you're welcome thank you very much thanks guys